الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن وله Welcome everybody to the Safina Society Nothing But Facts live stream on a beautiful Monday in which I'm joined by my friend and guests as you could see next to me here Sheikh Haroon Saleh uh, Welcome to the Sheikh Haroon is to be no stranger to anybody here especially people who have taken classes on ArcView or come to MBIC or know about our community because he lives around the corner. Uh, we're lucky to have him in the area. Inshallah, he, he spent uh, a couple years studying in Egypt and probably will go back for a period of time to finish up his education and come back and uh, be our mufti here, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. And inshallah, nobody steals him in the process. <laughs> I'm going to be watching and intercepting emails to make sure nobody uh, sending any offer letters to Sheikh Haroon. Uh, but he will also be joined by Sammy Hamdi, who you said is a risk advisor as a professor. Yeah, that's what I saw as uh, on, the, on the Mad Mamluks podcast. He's, oh, he's, he's, you said he's a risk. He's yeah. been Global doing the rounds. Advisor, yeah. yeah, he's been doing the rounds and he's been doing a good job in terms of explaining a lot of the background of what's going on. These guys, um, they got to follow the news all the time. When they're in the financial world, they got to follow the news all the time. And that's what uh, Sami Hamdi, as you're going to see, is very, very in tune with everything that's going on. Now, what is uh, in your uh, keeping up to date? What, what's the latest? Give us the... Yeah, so, of course, uh, for those who don't know, I'm Palestinian, so it's like different for us mm -hmm. uh, because we're keeping up because we're speaking to family and friends all the time. Mm -hmm. So I have family in Gaza. I have family in uh, what we call the 48 borders. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of friends... Which are what? So you have uh, in Israel mm -hmm. the forty-eight, we call the that original the borders. borders. That's oh, like the, the Israeli borders. So all the Arabs who are there, yeah, right, they don't say that they're uh, Israeli Arabs. Of course, they call yeah. themselves forty-eight Arabs. Ah, oh, okay, because okay. they can't. They don't want to attribute themselves exactly. That. So they're Palestinians yeah. with Israeli citizenship. Okay. okay, that's what they are. And then, and yeah. then there's also I have a lot of friends in the in the West Bank too. Okay, right. So and every every single person that you speak about, it's like where do I even begin? To speak, mm. right? and that—that's—that's that's what I found to be very difficult. That's what they're saying to you. Yeah, that's what they're saying. That's what yeah. I feel too, right? Every time uh, we speak about this, it's like there's so much going on yeah. that um, you don't even know what to say, right? Because you have Gaza, of course. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, the, the death toll is over five thousand that they've killed. Right? They've reached over five thousand. Last night was very brutal. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, following it. Uh, but then you also have in the West Bank too, right? The last time I checked, it was over 90 that they killed, right? This is Israeli settlers and IDF soldiers. 90 people. Yeah, over 90 people um, that they've killed. Mm. Um, you know, protesters, a good amount of them, women and children, uh, elderly people. Yeah. Uh, the, the jails in the West mm -hmm. Bank, they've taken over 5,000 extra prisoners. So they wow. had 5,000 before, now it's over 10,000. Wow. Right? And what people don't understand is the reason for you to be arrested is as simple as making a dua. Mm. As simple as anything, right? And then you have the 48 borders, right? They've been arresting left and right. Anyone who uh, writes a du'a, yeah. who even follows uh, news, who even likes a post that they don't like, mm -hmm. right? This is like being a traitor, right? This is So there was this... Uh, she's a famous uh, Palestinian... She's, uh, she's from the 48 borders. So she's a famous Palestinian uh, singer and also neurosurgeon. Like she's mm. famous in the... Uh, there, right? It's a unique combination. Yeah, and she was getting threats from other Israelis for putting up a du'a mm. for Gaza, 
right? And so they started giving her death threats. Wow. She goes to the police to complain, like wow. to, to put it on, to record Record. it. Yeah. What do they say? They say, okay, we have to arrest you now wow. because you're demoralizing the war spirit. Oh my God. Right? Wow. So that's the level to which they're going crazy. Even some might have seen a, a video of uh, in, 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 in Al Quds. Yeah. Right? You have this uh, store owner, they walk in. They tell him, let me see your Facebook, mm-hmm. open up your phone. They saw a few likes on like, you know, Gaza stuff. Wow. They said, all right, you're coming with That's us. It. So they're just going around rounding everyone up. Uh, even a- a- academics and like, uh, uh, you know, professors, like yeah. left-leaning uh, Jewish professors, mm. right? They're not even exempt from this. Really? Either. Yeah, they're not necessarily exempt from our So uh, Mondo Weiss just put out an, an article going over this. Yeah. Now, when we say like speaking about what's happening in Gaza, of course, the main focus that you want to have is on what's happening in Gaza. Yeah. Okay. But then all of these other things play a part too, because you're being ignored right? or, or you're yeah. being taken away from it's, what's happening over uh, there. It's an opportunity for it's them. An oppor- exactly. That's yeah. what it is. So they're saying anybody right now um, who, who, who's an Arab outside. Mm-hmm. So, so you also had in, in Israel, you had a few um, from Gaza, like workers who were able to get in yeah. to work. A lot of them were, went missing, put in jails, and the people who brought them in wow. also, wow. right? So it's like crazy, right? So, so this is important to keep up with, right? Of course, the focus is on Gaza, mm-hmm. and you speak about Gaza, but then you have these like secondary debates that come up where they say, oh, well, this is happening because of Hamas. Well, then you say, oh, Hamas did what they did, and not that we necessarily support all of their actions, but um, you know, this is not a defense of them, but they did what they did because of the circumstances. You cannot start history on October, yeah. 7, uh, October 7th. That's what they're doing. right? Yeah. And then they say, oh, well, before that, you had these Arabs who were living under Israeli mm-hmm. uh, citizenship, and they're living fine. So why yeah. is it that these people can't live with us? Right, so then you need to now, and then this whole issue of the West Bank comes up, right? Yeah. So because you say now, okay, with the West Bank, there is no Hamas. Yeah. So why is it? Why do we have over ninety people dead there? What, yeah. what do they have to do? And with why it? is there nonstop Meshekit over there too? Exactly. Why yeah. is it there too? Then so if you if you uh, use the legal system, right, uh, you you go to jail. Mm-hmm. If you're in the West Bank and you do nonviolent resistance, you might be killed too. Yeah. Right. You do violent resistance. Now the whole world calls you a terrorist. So it's like, it, yeah. What do you There's want nothing. them to do? Right. It all goes back in my. Opinion about the matter It all goes back to one simple thing In the heart of the Jewish religion They have no sharia on how to govern Non-Jews In fact, I should retract that They do have a sharia And that sharia is to eliminate them That's Deuteronomy Yeah, there was this one Did you see that rabbi? Um, There's this rabbi reading uh, passages from the from the from the from the Torah from Deuteronomy specifically, yeah. uh, speaking about like what are the rules of engagement of words. Yeah. It went it had its round, and he's saying you have to kill all of their women and children, Everything. and you know quoting because they, they will grow up, and yeah. y- this is an injustice to the person that they will kill in the future. And you oh. see, this is not far away. This yeah. is the problem, right? This is not far away from the rhetoric that's being used uh, in the Israeli Knesset by mm-hmm. the high um, uh, IDF people, the IDF spokesmen, right? Yeah. There's um, there's this one, I forgot what it was called, but um, everything's there, right? Uh, they put together a um, a document going over all of the genocidal statements yeah. that have been made because uh, the point about genocide is it's by intent. Yeah. You have to intend to do it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But you have all of these statements from the Israeli president. You have mm-hmm. statements from uh, the, the IDF defense minister. You have statements from high-ranking uh, Knesset people, generals, right? Speaking about cutting off the water. They're all animals. They brought yeah. it upon themselves. All of these things, right? Yeah. And it's clearly coming from somewhere. It's got to... If, if this is your book and... You go to Israel, chances are you're a religious person back in the early 20th century, 
right? You come from Eastern Europe, you're coming to Israel. Uh, everyone's reading this, this book and this law. Everyone's reading the law. Everyone's studying. So 50, if 40% 50, if of your population studies, right? These are your leaders. Right. And they're repeating this stuff. And everyone's like, okay, that's our there So there's no way to now, but then you have to go now and appeal to the West for money. Then you have to appear like a democracy. This is schizophrenic society, yeah, right? Where you, on one hand, your true belief, they should be all killed. But our biggest ally is a liberal on the other side where everyone's equal and everyone should be treated equally. Yeah. So this is where you have a schizophrenic society. And, and, and this is something that cannot be like understated, right? Yeah. So this is even amongst their left... Uh, they're leftist, uh, yeah. or maybe not leftist, but the more liberal yeah. uh, crowd, right? Because the leftists are a little bit different. And this is important, right? To, to follow this, you really need to know uh, Israeli politics as well and, mm -hmm. know, and know what's happening on the inside. Yeah. Um, it's very important to understand why they're doing what they're doing sometimes. Um, the liberals are just as bad. So like the Israeli president right now, the president, not the prime minister, he's a liberal, yeah. right? And he had very similar statements to make. Um, I remember one- Genocidal statements? Yeah. Ajib. Yeah, yeah. I thought they would be a lot more no in line no, with no. Western. Not not hmm. maybe just the leftists. Ah, Ajib. Yeah, so they're 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 not. Hmm. Um, yeah, there's something that many people don't know. Um, I was actually uh, when I was there in 2014, mm -hmm. and there was a war happening on Gaza in 2014, right? And I went to the gym, just like a normal gym, right? In and Gaza. No, no, no. It was in Palestine. Oh, oh, you were in uh, the Quds area? The Quds area, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Now, now, this gym, you have, of course, uh, you have uh, Palestinians and Jews going yeah. to it as well. Um, so I speak English, right, when I yeah. go there, right? Uh, just pretend like I'm a foreigner, yeah. right? So this, um, this guy, so I needed a, a spot on the bench. Yeah. So I asked this random guy to spot me, right? And then after he says... No, no, it was he, he was watching me do something and then he came up and spoke to me. Okay. Right. Anyway, uh, he asked me for a spot. I don't know how, how it happened, right? The main thing is he didn't realize that I'm Palestinian, right? Mm. He thought I'm just like a tourist in the area. Yeah. So he's like, all of these, you know, people in, in Gaza, we have to just level it flat. Wow. This is just a normal wow. average guy, right? Just level it flat. Wow. Level flat the, the, the women, the children, mm -hmm. and this and that. Level the whole thing flat. Wow. Right, uh, very, very, you know, crazy, and this—it's not the first time that I've heard things like yeah. this, right? But it was different to hear it directly, like you know, you don't even know who and I am, and you feel comfortable saying, yeah, this, right? If he yeah. feels comfortable saying this, that means that's normal rhetoric yep. that they say amongst themselves, yeah, right? Then it, eventually, he, it to a eventually, he asked me where I'm from, right? Yeah. So when I told him the name of the village that I'm yeah. from. His oh face changed. Gosh. And he started saying, you know, we want what's best for you Arabs and oh we're trying our gosh. best to have peace. And I'm like, are yeah. you serious? Like, yeah. You know, for me, I, I saw it as a good opportunity, right? I'm like, okay, well, he's spilling the, yeah. what, what he feels inside. Let me milk this out, yeah. right? Until he asked me where I'm from, right? But I was just surprised, like to just a normal, for all he knows, I could have just been a tourist out of town. I personally feel that that's where, that's where we're headed and the whole world will watch and approve. And it just, it, it, the same thing happened to the Jews in Germany. The whole world watched and approved. We saw it happen, right? In history, at least. It's happened in the, in the, in the last century. Now they're just on the other side. They internalized it, and I believe they're going to do it to somebody else because they've internalized it so much. Now, if you're on Instagram, hop onto YouTube so you can see everybody. Now, I want to ask you a couple of things. Now, there's some basic education here that a lot of people may have an idea of, but don't exactly have um, a specific, um, you know, knowledge of it. A couple of terms here. The Nekba, 
the 48 borders, the 67 borders, and the 73 borders. Could you explain to our viewers what exactly, like very simply, what are these terms? Yeah, so very simply, right? the, the Nakba, right, of course, in Arabic means the catastrophe. Mm-hmm. right? And what happened is leading up to the Nakba, um, you had these uh, Israeli groups like the Urgan and others going mm-hmm. around and uh, threatening and making life very difficult for the Arabs who are living there. The mm-hmm. One thing that people don't necessarily understand is when this this Israeli project started, yeah. not like the commoners weren't necessarily in tune with what was happening. They didn't, like they see a new people coming in, yeah. but not everyone in the beginning understood what was happening. We're talking 1910, 1920. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's certain key figures who came up who kind of made people aware mm. of what's happening and saying that we need to fight back and this yeah. and that, right? Certain names that I don't want to mention, right? Because so, we don't want to get in trouble here, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, leading up to the Nakba, basically, uh, what happened was uh, when when the war happened, a bunch of uh, it's over seven hundred fifty thousand right Palestinians were displaced. Nineteen forty eight. Nineteen forty eight. Yeah. Like immediately upon Ben Gurion saying that uh, this is now a state of Israel and I'm its uh, chairman or whatever. Yeah. Uh, or it's it's uh, prime minister. Right away, the Arab militias got together and they started to fight. Yeah. So then um, the everything happened. Between two extremes, mm-hmm. or I don't want to say extremes, between two levels, right? Yeah. So you had things as bad as the Deir Yassin massacre. Right? Explain. Over 100 people just murdered, right? Oh. Or even more than that, right? So the records are there. Anyone can search it up. Where uh, Israelis, uh, Israeli soldiers, well, they weren't, uh, I don't know if they were technically Israeli soldiers at this point, mm. but they went in and just massacred. Yeah. Uh, it's a very brutal massacre that happened, and it's very well recorded. <laughs> that 90-year-old IDF soldier who was say, I don't know if you saw that clip, yeah, saying we have... The, he, we have oh, to get yes, rid of yes, yes, yes. He participated in that massacre. Ajib. He must have been 25 years old or something. Yeah, he participated in that massacre, right? Wow. So there's people living today who yeah. participated in that. Yeah. So you had massacres we sh- that We happened. showed that, by the way, here for yeah, everybody. Yeah. And, then, and then things that it wasn't to the level of massacre, but like threats until they got them out. So you had things like, I don't want to say it's light, but as light as what happened in uh, Al-Haram, Qariyat uh, Sidna Ali. Mm-hmm. Right? So I visited this uh, this past summer when I went. Uh, and it's basically where one of the great grandsons of Amr bin Khattab radiallahu anhu is buried. Mm. Uh, or there's a maqam there for him, right? And there's a masjid and there's a graveyard. And his name is Ali. Yeah. Okay. And there's nothing else around. Yeah. Right? There's a graveyard. If you look carefully, you'll see like that there were houses there, but mm. it's basically nothing there. Um, what happened there is that uh, they were going around and uh, doing basically terrorist attacks on Arab villages around um, leading up to the neck, but where they got scared and they left. Mm. Right, and they left. Now, now the interesting thing is, right? They say that nobody, they, they try, uh, the Arabs didn't want peace. Well, this is an example of a village that actually um, didn't have a problem living in peace with Jewish people. Mm-hmm. They, of course, they didn't realize what was about to come. Yeah. Right, and so a lot of the agreements that they had between like a local Jewish village and their village was on the pretext that they would be able to stay peacefully and mm. all of these things, right? But you know, even them, right? So th- these are talking points that they say that. Uh, when you get into the minutia of things, right, it's very easily debunked. Yeah. Um, so you had things in the middle of massacres and basically threats, like you know, you better get out of here. Mm-hmm. Right now, when they left, they weren't allowed to return. Right. Yeah. So like like my family that's in Gaza right now, right, um, some of them left from Yaffa. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yaffa is close to uh, what is they they have now Tel Aviv, right. So Yaffa is like right next to it, right. So. Um, my grandmother on my dad's side, they left and mm. they went to Gaza. Now, most of them were not able to get back. 
you see, even though they still have Were their they phone. Promised? They weren't promised to come back. No, but the international law gives the, the right for refugees to return to their homes. See, there are yeah. people who still have the deeds and the keys to their homes. So they're considered refugees of the war. Of the forty-eight war, yeah, and and you have uh, you have, and then sixty-seven is is another uh, similar war to that. So yeah. you have in Gaza seventy percent are uh, are refugees. Seventy percent of Gaza are refugees, mm. and this is important context for you know when they say that they need to leave. Yeah, you're going to make a population that's already refugees. Yeah, leave again it's and abs- say you can, you can come back. It's so right? stupid. It's so absurd when people say. Uh, and 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 you see these you, you see this sentiment come from people who sort of just dabble in the issue. They're dis, dis, distant from the issue, and and definitely not Arab or Palestinian. And they say absurd uh, comments like, "Why don't the Arab people of Gaza just leave and find an, a, a peaceful home somewhere else?" As if we're living in Europe or America, where yeah. all these states have open borders, and you could just go somewhere else, right? Right, so it's infuriating no, but, but, but people even, talk like even this. then, right? Like, why, you know, that that needs to be questioned, right? Why are you supporting ethnic cleansing? Exactly. You know, it's like it's like yeah. why don't they just leave? Hold on a second. Are you yeah. saying are you saying that you support ethnic cleansing? Like, even yeah. the, why is the question even coming up? Why are you why, submitting why are to they the in bully? a position where they need to leave? This yeah. is not a natural disaster. Yeah, you're submitting to the bully. Right? It's crazy. So in the neck, but how long does that take that war? Is that like a couple months or like a couple years? If I remember correctly, right? Uh, unfortunately, my my the exact things are not yeah. fresh in my head, but it should be like a year, a year or, two, or a little bit more. Oh, something it's a long like time. That. Yeah, you could but do a lot. If, if I remember correctly, though, you could be, do a lot. All right, our guest has arrived. Um, Omar, are we ready? Okay, great. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, in the way that we were immediately after October 7th. So why don't you give us the on-the-ground update of, of, of what's happening in Philistine? Jazakallah khair. Thanks to you. Thank you to uh, Sheikh Harun, who's there as well, and and everybody who's watching this. I think now all eyes are on this potential ground invasion that might take place. It's becoming increasingly imminent based on the information that's coming out. Israel wants to go in. There are suggestions that it's going this time to try to occupy northern Gaza in that Netanyahu's peace offering to the Israelis who are protesting on the street against him and blaming him for what they call to be the greatest crisis to Israel since 1948. Netanyahu believes that the best way to resolve it is to take more land from the Palestinians, give it to the Israeli settlers, and they'll forgive him for it. The problem is there are three obstacles that Israel and Washington are scrambling to try to resolve before they begin a ground invasion. 
The first is to the, of the issue of where the Palestinians will go. And that's why there's heavy pressure on Sisi in Egypt to open the Rafah crossing. I've seen a lot of criticism of Sisi that it's callous that he's kept the Rafah crossing closed. But I do think, and I'm not defending him, if I was in a position, I'd open it. But I do think that one of the reasons Sisi doesn't want to open it is because he knows that the Israelis want to drive the Palestinians into the Sinai Peninsula, where they will live in new refugee camps, and then the Israelis will never allow them to return afterwards after they finish their ground operation. And Sisi fears going down in history as being complicit in a new Nakba in Gaza. The second obstacle is Iranian proxies. There's deep concern that Hezbollah in Lebanon, in Lebanon is waiting for the Israelis to get bogged down in Gaza because the Israelis don't have a very good history of ground operations in Gaza. Every time they go in, they struggle, they get bogged down, they end up with a lot of casualties. There's concern that once they go into Gaza, Hezbollah will cross over from the north. And those who remember 2008, 2009, it's generally considered that the Israelis lost to Hezbollah, that Netanyahu was unable to subdue them in the last war with Hezbollah. And the third obstacle is public opinion. As a result of social media breaking Israel's monopoly on the narrative, as a result of everybody sharing Palestinian content, as a result of the liberation of the algorithms, particularly on Twitter and the like, allowing pro-Palestinian content, popular pro-Palestinian content, to appear on new homepages and the like, Israel is struggling with the narrative. And anybody who opens Washington Post, you'll notice that underneath the headline about Blinken's visit to Saudi and Egypt, Washington Post describes that the reason for Blinken's visit was to ask Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and these countries to try to tone down public opinion. And we're seeing videos now of some scholars in Saudi who are now saying that citizens should stop talking about Gaza because Wali al-Amr is the one who knows about the issue and that all of your analysis is causing an unnecessary burden. So there are, these are the three obstacles now to a ground invasion. There are reports that the Americans have sent a three-star Marine general to Israel today to discuss the risks, according to some of the reports, the risks of a ground invasion. Biden is trying to pressure the Israelis to hold off on the ground invasion. They're not sure whether it's wise or not. There, and the final thing that's worth mentioning on this is that the Hamas and the other Palestinian factions are trying to fend off the ground invasion. There are reports that the Red Cross is now to receive 50 hostages of dual nationality that are due to be released as a result of negotiations with Qatar, the idea being that if they can release those 50 dual nationalities, then the Americans can get the Israelis to put off the ground invasion. But the one thing that is worth noting here is the idea of the ground invasion suggests that Netanyahu has the initiative and he is the one in the ascendancy. But the reason Netanyahu is going into the ground invasion is because no matter how much he bombs Gaza, He's unable to wipe away the humiliation that he suffered at the hands of the Palestinians and also the humiliation that he suffered in that breaking of the monopoly on the narrative. I, I assume that you're in the US, but we've seen videos here on social media of DeSantis, the Republican candidate, going into a supermarket trying to say Israel has the right to self-defense and Americans responding and saying, we don't believe you anymore because of what we've seen. So mm -hmm. I think that the public opinion, uh, Iran and the issue of where to put the Palestinians are the reasons why it's been delayed. But all talk, to answer your question directly, all talk is on an imminent ground invasion. Nobody knows when, but it's certainly building up to it. I'm going to ask one question, then I'm going to turn it over to uh, Sheikh Haroun. I don't know if you've ever met, but you can find him on Twitter, Sheikh Haroun Saleh. You're still on Twitter, right? I am. 50 50. Uh, uh, yeah, I tried to get off, but I felt like uh, uh, I had to get back on to kind of talk about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. To, to add and, and to help at least uh, dictate the points. Um, Sheikh Harun is from Philistine. You are also from Philistine? 
I'm from North Africa, where North Africa. Algerians are renowned for their support Algerians. for Palestine. Uh, okay, mashallah, yeah. mashallah. <laughs> one, one people. Yep. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, we saw in the World Cup how Morocco was, there were more Palestinian flags than Moroccan flags held yes, by yes. the Moroccan fans. So uh, Allah reward them for that. I want to ask you the Thank first you. question. Uh, I was thinking yesterday, the public opinion worldwide is now swaying, maybe not in America, but in the rest of the world. It's swaying against Israel hard. It's not hard to fathom and to imagine the Mossad doing something, inflicting something upon themselves so egregious okay, that will, that will then be pinned onto Hamas and justify all this all over again. Because the public opinion is going so far, I believe that's a, a, a possibility. What are your thoughts on that? I think certainly it's a possibility, and we've already seen the attempts to do that. I think that when you remember the story of the 40 beheaded babies and the way that it was proliferated on mainstream media and amongst Israeli allies, I think the reason that story went so wide or why it was really pushed was because the videos that were coming out actually showed magnanimous uh, fighters coming out. There was Channel 12 in Israel where the woman says they came into my house. They said they won't hurt me because they're Muslim. And then one of them asked me for a banana and they left after two hours. There was an interview with the Israeli radio, which was caught live and the section was later deleted, of a woman who described that when the Palestinians came in, they didn't harm any civilians. But when the Israelis came to liberate it, they shot some of the hostages and shot some of the Israelis in order to try to say that the Palestinians did it. There's also deep concern for anybody who's, who follows Israeli journalists that a lot of the families of the hostages in Israel itself are complaining that Netanyahu is showing no regard for the hostages, that he's going in and that they're not a priority, that he prioritizes the annexation of the Gaza Strip over the lives of those particular hostages. And that's why I think that Israel has been pushing it. If you remember the hospital, when they bombed the hospital, Al-Ahli Hospital, and they tried to blame it on a Hamas rocket, which was later debunked by forensic uh, investigators and OSINT and the like, because there is this deep concern about the shift in public opinion. And you were saying maybe not in America, but the polls that came out two days ago suggest that at least 53, 54% of Americans are now in favor of an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. They're no longer buying, and that's unprecedented for the US. And in the UK, we have a YouGov poll, which is one of the reliable pollsters, that says that more than 76% of Britons are in favor of an immediate ceasefire. And that's quite simply unprecedented. So I think that when you, when you talk about the concern about Mossad staging, something. They've already tried to stage something with regards to the 40 beheaded babies. They tried to stage something by saying that the woman was killed and paraded on the streets and then Newsweek later published and said that she was actually being taken to a hospital where she was receiving treatment. They tried to say that there were rapes that occurred, but then the eyewitness accounts of Israeli settlers themselves said we never saw any of these things that the Israelis are saying. And that's why it's important to stress here, and it builds on your point, as Dr. Asim Qureshi from, from CAGE said on Twitter when I was reading reading it, he said, you know, the Israelis are telling us what is happening, but the Palestinians are showing us what is mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming abundantly clear through social media that the vivid images of what's happening is forcing the shift in social media. And so while you, you, your question implies that Mossad might do something, I would stress they have and they are failing so far. 
as a result of public opinion. When you ask Sheikh Haroon, are you still using Twitter? And he says, I'm using Twitter because I want to promote the Palestinian cause. The reality is this war of narratives is being won on social media. Mm -hmm. BBC presenter apologized, not because the BBC editorial board said she did anything mm -hmm. wrong. She apologized because the social media was so overwhelming mm -hmm. and the feedback was so overwhelming. They had no choice but to apologize. Yeah. CNN, the reason they apologized was not because the Israelis said we're unhappy with your narrative. They apologized because the social media wave was so huge. They had to apologize. Sky News, which I never thought would ever apologize for any content on Palestine, came out and apologized because their presenter Kay Burley had said that the Palestinian ambassador said the Israelis had it coming. And Sky News apologized for that publicly. The State Department in the US, you have the resignation of one of the main directors. And Blinken has to hold a listening session two days ago with his staff to plead with them not to resign because they're feeling the pressure from social media. So I think that it's true that Mossad might be planning something more, but, and I'll finish on this point, but the point is that they have tried, they have pushed, and they're failing every single time, not because of government campaigns by Muslim nations or the like, but because of the ordinary people using their social media mm -hmm. and demanding the proof of the veracity of all information. That's what's making them crumble. And this is why what's important to note here is this is genuinely a battle where you can see the real impact of the mobilization of the Ummah and all allies of justice mm -hmm. outside it's a it's a great time actually for anyone who cares about uh, uh, journalism epistemology uh, tawatur and tawatur cannot be denied yeah right and this is what they call the new media where everyone's little cell phone uh, combined together actually brings you certainty yields certainty uh, uh, and exposes lies. Uh, let's turn it over now to Sheikh Harun. What would you like to? Yeah. So I think as we said in the beginning, um, you know any. Palestinian that you speak to now, when you ask them what's happening on the ground, right? The a lot of them, and this is something that I've said, and and many of my friends over there have said, "Wallahi, we don't know where to begin," mm. right? So the focus you want it to be on Gaza, of course, but then there's other things that have to be spoken about as well. Um, so I wanted to to see what what uh, what Sammy thinks about you know about how we frame our discourse. So of course we want the focus to be on Gaza, but then there's other things that are happening in the West Bank, in the um, inside Israel with them, uh, what they're doing amongst themselves to Palestinian uh, Palestinians inside there. Um, you know, how do you kind of choose where the focus should be? So you have this these discussions on. Um, I don't want to call them conspiracy theories, but mm -hmm. questioning the narrative of what happened on October 7th. So you have uh, an article ju that just came out and I thought it was interesting. And they said that we should uh, investigate and see how much of those 1,400 civilians that were killed, um, or actually not all of them were civilians. And that's another important thing to keep in mind is that a lot of them were soldiers, but um, that a lot of the civilian deaths could have been from IDF soldiers yeah. in their fighting with Hamas. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that's not something that, so it's like, there's so much that's happening and you're not sure where to focus on. So how do you decide um, what to focus on and what to touch upon a little bit and what to maybe leave for later? Hmm. I think that's a very important question. And, and, and it's a question that's often asked even in the WhatsApp groups with, with, with a number of journalists and, and scholars and the like who are trying to help to uh, unify the message with which we're trying to talk about Palestine. I think that what's important to note is to 
fight the battles that you know that you can win and where mm. you won't get caught into a, a mudslinging competition. By that, I mean that you focus on the issue of the civilian casualties, the rights of the Palestinians not to live under occupation, the violence that Israel implicates on the occupied people, the way that they've monopolized the narratives and everybody's sudden wake, suddenly waking up to it, the realities of the Palestinians who live under the Israeli occupation. You'll notice that Human Rights Watch today is using the word apartheid. Amnesty is using the word apartheid. Apartheid is being used on the Congress floor. These things are unprecedented. You couldn't imagine they would happen 70 years ago, but they're happening now as a result of the breaking of Israel's monopoly. What Israel is concerned about is not that you will prove that the IDF were involved in the criminality of whatever happened on October 7th. What Israel is terrified of is that the world will now see the Palestinians as human, that mm. the world will now see the Palestinians not as the barbaric animals that they've been painting them as for the last 70 years, but that they will see them as ordinary children, as mothers, as fathers, as elderly and the like. That's what Israel is terrified of. And that's why the focus of any talk on Palestine should be on the humanity of the cause and on the humanity of the Palestinians. That these are not terrorists being killed, these are ordinary civilians. And that's why I thought it very poignant that a lot of the focus in recent days has been about the idea that when everybody says, will you condemn Hamas? People are saying, okay, fine, let's suppose I do. And let's suppose we go past this point. Let's imagine Hamas is eradicated. Let's imagine you remove them. Then what do you do about the world that is the West Bank, for example? What do you do about the Palestinians who remain there? Suddenly you find that where they're trying to drag you into a mud, mud slinging bath in terms of what Hamas is and what they do, you force them onto a terrain that is very much realistic where they have no answers. You mentioned earlier about the West Bank. The reason the West Bank is such an uncomfortable topic for the Israelis and Western media is because there is no Hamas in the West Bank. You have a Palestinian authority that has abided by all of the conditions that the Americans have wanted since the Oslo Accords of 1993. You have a Palestinian authority that proactively restrains the resistance of the Palestinians in order to uphold agreements with the Israelis. You have a Palestinian authority that cooperates on security issues with the Israelis on the basis that the Israelis will leave them alone. What's the excuse for Israel to keep bombing them? And that's why I think that when it comes to social media, the reason they've been so effective is because they haven't been bogged down on where the Israelis want to talk about, which is criminality of actions or terrorism and the like, but focusing on the humanity of the Palestinians. And that's what's making the Israelis go ballistic. They cannot fathom the idea that the ordinary American who shouts at DeSantis in the supermarket is telling them that I don't believe that those civilians deserve to be bombed because of the actions of a few. And that's why Israel's monopoly is being broken, because we're seeing a lot of non-Muslims online who are saying that all my life I believe the Israeli narrative, but I can't think of any scenario where it's justified to bomb a hospital and kill 500, to mm -hmm. leave babies under the rubble, to see the pictures of a baby's head being split into two, may Allah never show anybody anything like that, to see the video of the child who's shaking with fear and then burst into tears when he's hugged by somebody because he doesn't know where his parents are the like. That shakes the heart because what you're speaking to here is not just to the conscience of humanity, but to the fitrah. The fitrah is screaming in every individual, Muslim or non-Muslim, that there is something so horribly wrong here. And no matter what Israel or Ben Shapiro or these other people are saying, nothing can justify what I'm seeing before my eyes. And that's why mm -hmm. I know sometimes some Muslims want to get bogged down in, you mentioned in between Peshmer's conspiracy theories, but the reality is that the victory is not being won in those battles. It's being won in finally breaking Israel's stranglehold on the monopoly and for the first time us breaking through the algorithm and actually telling people the story. And, and it's worth noting here, there is a prominent political analyst in the US who helped to modernize the political industry, 
where I work. My job is to advise corporate clients how to save money in, in crises and disasters by advising them what's going to happen next in scenario planning. But Ian Bremer, who, who we tend to follow for his analysis, he put a tweet up where he said, I've never seen so much disinformation on the issue of Palestine and Israel. What he meant was, is I've never seen so much pro-Palestinian content on my feed. So you can mm. imagine how many people are now being exposed to that. So the question, and I'll reframe your question slightly, what should we be showing the world? We should be showing the world that the Palestinians are human, that they are mothers and children and fathers with aspiring dreams like everybody else, and that they're being slaughtered simply because Israel believes it has a 1,000-year-old claim on a piece of land. And I think that's what's breaking the narrative, and we're seeing the global shift in public opinion. Uh, and I, I, have, I have a burner account on Twitter uh, where I, that allows me to look at these things without being able to reply uh, right away. But it's like you said, the, the average Joe, even in the United States, and all these fake accounts and regular people, they're, the longer this war goes on, the more educated they're getting right. on the issue. So in the beginning, you saw people posting stuff like, hey, what's going on over there? Oh, they're at it again. Well, now we're two and three weeks in. The same people have bothered now to look up history of Palestine, look up origin of the Israeli state. And they're actually this, in a sense, it's backfiring badly upon Israel. The more people are getting educated that Israel is not a state, a country like Ecuador, Bolivia, like a regular old country that's been around for hundreds of years. This is a country that you know came into being with controversy, came came into an existence through a Nakba or a disaster, what's what's called the Great Catastrophe, uh, came into being by British hands, right, putting it in, and came into being through uh, refugees, as we mentioned before you came on. Gaza is in fact seventy percent refugees. The the people of Gaza all came out. Through from the Nakba uh, and moved in. And on this live stream itself, one of the things we're trying to do is the ABCs, the 101, what is the history of Israel? What is the history of Palestine? What is the Nakba, for example? What is the 1948 borders? How, who was um, uh, 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 Theodore Herzl? What were the ideas going on uh, uh, in the 1900s that led to the existence of this state? So uh, the people on the ground, on one hand, they're catching up to history. And a lot of these guys, especially a lot of the right-wingers, this is their first rodeo on Palestine and Gaza. The people who got activated politically through uh, Trump, these guys who are very outspoken online and are very much America first, this is their first time actually truly getting exposed to this type of thing. True. So uh, the narrative is being changed uh, uh, across the board, even really in the United States, although the establishment is not budging on it. Uh, but... I want to shift now to another subject, which is uh, the Arabs and normalization. Is this just going to be a bump in the road and then 12 months from now we're back to normalization? Or is this actually a, a, a bigger halt and a bigger pause and a bigger uh, a, a crack in the movement of normalizing relations between Israel and the Arab countries? <coughs> I think that the reality is that when you look at the stances of the Muslim countries towards what's happening today in Gaza, you can see it very clearly that they're being very careful not to offend Netanyahu. Erdogan, for example, has this uh, gas pipeline that he wants to build in the Mediterranean, and he's concerned that this economic corridor that was announced at the G20 summit in India 
two months ago or last month, is going to go India. It crosses a little bit of the sea, then UAE, Saudi, uh, Jordan, Israel, and then goes into Europe. He's worried that will completely transform the economic nature of the region and that he's trying to convince the Israelis not to go through Saudi and UAE, but to go through Turkey instead. And that's why Erdogan has been quite unprecedentedly quiet and not as loud as he has been in the past on the issue of Palestine. Uh, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman initially appeared to buckle. For those who've been following Saudi over the past few years, you'll notice that the statements, official statements on Palestine tend to start omitting the word colonizer and occupation. And in one statement, we even saw Israel being used between quotation marks where the Saudis, where it was an upgrade from occupation, but the Saudis would say, we're not recognizing because it's in quotation mark. We saw the Saudi crown prince buckle in the, in the first few hours of October 7th, when he went back to referring to them as an occupying power. We saw him lift restrictions on dua for Palestine that were entrenched during Ramadan when imams were told to stop making a lot of dua and some of them were sacked for making dua for Palestine in the first place. The Haram started making dua for Palestine again, which shocked a lot of people as well. But equally, we're seeing that the Saudi crown prince, for those who followed his speech at the Riyadh summit with the ASEAN countries, with Malaysia and Indonesia, two days ago, in a speech five minutes long, he dedicated exactly 32 seconds to the issue of what's happening in Gaza. He called it violence, not an escalation or a conflict or the like. He didn't mention Israel by name, nor did he condemn Israel. And he also, while he mentioned the 1967 borders, he didn't condemn Israel, which implied that the Muslims would say, oh, bin Salman now is now talking about 1967 borders, whereas yesterday he was saying, I just want to make their life easy. But the Israelis would say he didn't condemn us so clearly. There's a messaging over mm. there. The UAE is giving 20 million in aid while simultaneously uh, blaming Hamas and blaming the Palestinians for what happened on October 7th. The reason I mention all of these various different stances is to show that for the Muslim nations and the regimes, their belief is that Netanyahu will win this round, that the Palestinians won't achieve too much, that Netanyahu will still be a power and no one wants to offend Netanyahu. And that's why the Americans and some of, and the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee in Congress today actually said that normalization is not off the cards, that the Saudis still want it. And the reason the Saudis still want it is because for them, they want the Americans to protect them from Iran and Iranian proxies. The Houthis, they fired on the Saudi Aramco in 2019, the Iraq, Hash the Shabi, loyal to Iran, fired rockets at the Royal Palace in Saudi Arabia in 2021. You, the Houthis filed missiles towards Jeddah when Formula One was being held. For the Saudi crown prince, the offer of a NATO-style security agreement with the Americans, nuclear technology to develop nuclear capabilities, and also a, a public American affirmation so companies will come and build Vision 2030 as well. Today, the Saudi Crown Prince, while Gaza burns, has announced the opening of the World Cup of the video game tournament and uh, has affirmed that this will place Saudi Arabia now, wallillah alhamd, at the center of the video game industry in, in the world. And this is part of Vision 20 going forward. When you see Uqav newspaper, Saudi Arabia's national newspaper, you would assume like Kuwait and Oman, for example, that the front page would be plastered all over it with Gaza and with Palestine. Instead, we have half of the page about economic development, a quarter of the page about something King Salman said. And we have on the bottom right-hand corner, a picture of Gaza destruction, but a focus on Gaza itself. We saw Al Arabiya, the Saudi channel, for example, 
example, three days ago, host Khaled Mish'al of the Hamas Politburo, and the presenter goes in on him. She goes in to burn him. Why did you do this? Why did you? Now you brought disaster on the Palestinians. You brought disaster on the Gazans. All of these are messages and indications, at least from Saudi Arabia and Turkey and the UAE, that normalization will hold, that will maintain our relation with Israel. We want good ties, and this is just a blip in the mm. process. Once things calm down, we'll go back towards normalization of ties. And there are actually Saudi commentators who are now pitching the idea on social media that bin Salman could normalize ties with Israel in exchange for de-escalation or in exchange for Netanyahu allow or not annexing the West Bank or Gaza. And then the Muslim world will say that the bin Salman intervened and rescued the Palestinians from certain destruction. But I think the direct answer to your question is there are no indications that suggests that there will be a revision of normalization. There are no indications that Morocco will reverse ties as it did in 2000 when the Intifada happened and it closed the Israeli office. This time the Moroccans are content with the statements or the like. And I think the Americans have received enough signals from Saudi Arabia or uh, in particular and from Erdogan that really, really we just want this issue to be finished and to go away. And I think that's why the direct answer to the question is, I think that once this finishes, there's still a very real prospect for normalization of ties between Saudi Arabia uh, and the US, particularly as we see bin Salman become more comfortable now after the initial fear of public opinion and beginning now to try to tell people, Khalas, that's enough now about Gaza. Let's mm -hmm. focus on my wonders of Vision 2030. So just to yeah. go off of that, um, one thing that stood out to me this time around uh, in the discourse that we see from Blinken and others and Biden and uh, you see more discussions around a permanent solution. So they say, uh, you know, to uh, the, the Palestinians aspiration to a two state solution or to have their own state and that we need to see uh, this happen. I was surprised that they were even speaking about it this early. Mm. Um, so what you know, do you see that that's a difference in discourse from past um, wars on Gaza? And, and what do you think that means? I think that in public, the Americans are shouting about unwavering support for the Israelis. Right. But I think that behind the scenes, the Israelis are concerned that Biden is not entirely on board with what Netanyahu is doing. That Biden is playing this very awkward balancing act where he doesn't want to lose control of Netanyahu by condemning him publicly, but he's doing what he did in 2021, where he would hound them about needing to see a strategy written on paper. And in 2021, it ended because Biden picked up the phone and said, time's out, you've run out of space. I can no longer hold this position in order to support you. I think that a lot, when you look at, for example, here in the UK, Keir Starmer, the head of the opposition party, came out and said that Israel has a right to cut off electricity and water in violation of international law. After a public backlash from the Muslims and the Muslims party, and there was an emergency meeting held by the party during the nighttime where the chief of staff warned that the loyal Muslim bloc, which is a sizable bloc for the Labour voting bloc, was turning away from Labour, Keir Starmer started rolling back on that statement. I think even with the White House, when it came out and said Biden had lied and didn't see any images of beheaded babies, I think that even inside the White House itself, while publicly there's a unified stance, I think inside there is a lot of division between them in, in terms of how they should proceed and the like. So I think that when we hear statements of two-state solution and the like, I think that that's the crack starting to show. That's the spillover from the divisions that are there underneath those. And that's why I think that those divisions are brought about by social media, which is why 
and I always try to emphasize this point that people shouldn't underestimate the power that they have to actually bring about change in terms of raising their voice. And I do think this is an Islamic principle first and foremost, particularly when you consider that the Prophet Muhammad said, the point here being advance the cause, even if it's just by saying a verse. In other words, just even if you say something, it has an impact. And I think that applies here. And I think a lot of the cracks, even in the European Union, we're seeing Spain be very loud about how angry it is with von der Leyen, the EU Commission President's unwavering stance with Israel. We saw Joseph Borrell, who is, to put it simply, head of foreign policy for the EU, tell a press conference that von der Leyen does not represent the EU position on Israel and that we don't support Israel in terms of unwaveringly and the like. I think that all of these cracks suggest that when you see these statements in diplomatic language, when you see these concession statements to state solution and the like, it's basically a message to say that there's something not right here mm. and we need something to happen. We can't say it publicly, but we're going to say it through this particular language. Yeah. I think there's a lot of difference. It's true. I finish on this point. It's, it's true that you know, people might hear and say loads of people are dying. You're talking as if there's, you know, like an infirage, there's something coming on the horizon that's going to. But but I think that within the complexities of what's happening, there's a lot of difference between the Americans and the Israelis. And I think Netanyahu believes that there's a certain window that he has to launch the grand invasion. And that's why I think he may not succeed in it. Mm. Uh, you, you mentioned the importance of everyone's voice. Uh, there are voices speaking from an Islamic perspective and from a strategic perspective that are uh, hesitant on uh, denouncing normalization. We know Sheikh bin Baya stated that this is not something for the, uh, this is something for the heads of state only uh, to, to decide because they have knowledge that we don't have. In so many words, this is what he said. Uh, we have also another commentator saying that uh, this is Shahid Bolson, who is a controversial speaker, but he has clips that are uh, watched around uh, uh, all over the world. There is no way around this fact without normalization. You're basically guaranteeing that Israel will only ever be accountable to the United States, and the Arabs and Muslims will never have any leverage. Part of why you're against against this is your hatred for Israel. Justified, he says. And the other part is hatred of our own regimes which I have argued time and time again is, is only in the interests of the West. He says, perhaps you can uh, start understanding how and why this is. Your stance is nothing but guaranteeing Western hegemony and Muslim helplessness. But you call that more the morally correct position. So here we have someone saying that strategically, Arabs would have some leverage over Israel if they normalized. Okay, uh, I have an opinion on this, but I want to first hear your opinion. I want to hear Sheikh Harun's opinion on this normalization as a strategy to have leverage over Israel? First of all, um, I will highlight Shahid Bolson has a one hour and a half critique of my opinion on normalization of ties. For anybody who wants to listen, you can find it as well. Uh, I think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Ya but he finishes that part with Oh, you who believe, obey Allah and the Prophet and those who rule from amongst you or those of authority amongst you. But in the event that you disagree with one another, who is disagreeing here? It's the ruler and the people being ruled. Not not the elite of the society. Allah is saying and the ruler, which means there are instances where the ruler will do 
something that we cannot fathom and we cannot appreciate. Allah doesn't say in this case, seed to ulil amri minkum, seed to those who have authority over you. Allah says, rudduhu ilallahi wa rasul. Go back to the Quran and the Sunnah. In other words, it's decided not in favor of the authority, but in favor of what is correct in the Quran and the Sunnah. And that's what Abu Bakr Sadiq meant when he said, qawimuni, that correct me, pressure me to take the correct course. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself has said that the basis of the argument that we follow the rulers on the basis that they know better is a false premise that the Quran itself blows out, uh, mm. obliterates that argument in and of itself. Allah has also ordained on every person that they're able to identify haqq and batil, and Allah has put the onus on everybody to try to fix it. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, man ra'a minkum munkaran fal he said, minkum, who amongst you sees a munkar? Not man ra'a min munkaran. He who sees among you from the elite something that is munkar, let him change it with his hand. Let him go out and exert effort to change the wrong with his hand. And if he cannot, because the one in authority has too much power, then with his tongue, let him denounce it. Let him condemn it. Let him get pressure. Let him try and, you know, sit with Dr. Shadi al-Masri and talk about it so people are aware of the munkar and the like. So they can make a difference and change public opinion. And if they cannot, let them condemn it in his heart. And that's the weakest of faith. So Allah has made, or the Prophet has made the resistance to all forms of oppression, regardless of who does it, has made it incumbent on the mu'min. And going to the third stage of authority, we've done Quran, we've done Sunnah. Ibn Khaldun said, Justice is the foundation of dominion. Oppression destroys a civilization. And Ibn Taymiyyah stressed the point of justice so much that he said that Allah will allow a state that doesn't believe in him to survive as long as it's just, but will not tolerate an Islamic state that is oppressive. For Allah allows justice to exist with shirk, but does not tolerate Islam to exist with oppression. Allah believes this to be too heinous a crime. When people talk about the idea of power, as, as Shahid Bolson alludes to in his video and in this tweet, that normalization can bring benefits or the like. Anybody who opens Surah Hud, for example, in the Quran, will see that Allah doesn't describe the people of Ad and Thamud as people who are weak, as people who are economically in poverty or the like. They were people who built extraordinary things economically, and they were people of great strength. But Allah destroyed them. He destroyed them because Allah is not looking for the economic prosperity. And like, as much as he's looking for the justice and whether people will stand with the justice despite the odds that are against them. And that's why I think that when I go back to your question in terms of, you know, don't go against authority and normalization might benefit or the like, the reality is that normalization, in the words of the Israeli ambassador himself to the United Nations, in the same meeting when Netanyahu held up that map of the region where he's erased Palestine completely from the map, and then he celebrates normalization with Saudi Arabia and says it will be the greatest deal since the end of the Cold War, the Israeli ambassador told Cannes Television, the Israeli television, they asked him, they said, will your right-wing government accept normalization of ties with Saudi Arabia? He said, normalization with Saudi Arabia means the complete Arab abandonment 
of the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And when the government realizes this, they will accept it. I understand the need to try to be politically nuanced in terms of what we have. People try to talk about the example of Hudaybiyah. They try to talk about the example of Abu Jandal when he tried to come back to Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ told him, I've signed a treaty, you have to go back. I get it. But I don't think it applies here. I do think that the reason why, and the final point, and apologies for going on a bit on this, but the final point that's worth mentioning is here. If the situation was like Hudaybiyah, where the Muslims lack the power to impose themselves and therefore sign the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, perhaps there might be room to discuss this possibility. But the reality is that Saudi, had, when, when the Canadian ambassador criticized Saudi human rights, Bin Salman kicked out the Canadian ambassador and Adil Jubay said, we're not, an, we're not a banana republic. When Biden called bin Salman a pariah, bin Salman started increasing the oil price and he forced Biden to go to him in Jeddah and plead for a reset in relations. When Biden started antagonizing bin Salman, bin Salman invited the Chinese Xi Jinping and gave them contracts to say to the Americans, you want to treat me like that? Let me show you what happens to anyone who disrespects me. So when you insult bin Salman, he deploys his leverage against the Americans and he makes them rush to him to tell him, please, please, we'll make concessions. But when it comes to Palestine, he's not willing to exert the same leverage. When Erdogan wants to spite the Americans, he invites the Russians and he makes the Americans scramble and said they send the head of CIA, send their secretary of state, send the vice president, send John Bolton to Ankara to plead with him not to deploy his power and leverage in favor of his interests. And they make concessions and Erdogan gets those concessions. Erdogan uses that leverage for his own interests, but is not willing to deploy it for Palestine. In other words, the final sentence is this. The Muslim countries have the power mm. to force the Americans to rein in the Israelis, but they choose not to. So when you argue that normalization with Israel might bring benefits, Yesidi, use the power you have now. And when that fails, Ta'ala, mm. let's talk about the idea of normalization. But you haven't even tried yet. And that's why I reject the suggestion, Jumlatan wa tafsira. I like what you said about, and, and I hope someone clips this out for him as a response, the whole clip. But uh, they have the power, they don't use it. On top of that, Israel and the West. Israel is not a subservient uh, creature to American demands. It seems that Israel's driving America, not the other way around. So the assumption that Israel would even bend towards, uh, 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 to, towards those who they're normalized with is also a falsy, uh, faulty assumption because America is far more powerful than the Arabs will ever be and yet Israel is not an obedient uh, creature to to uh, to America yeah they've disrespected the United States many times there are hot mic moments many times in which uh, Israelis speak out uh, prime ministers have spoken against uh, the Americans Americans frustrated with Israelis not listening to them not uh, consulting them before they do major things so it's not even that uh, america itself cannot reign in israel let alone arabs come together and we have a normalization deal as if now you have a polite neighbor who's going to want to make sure the fence is mended and we're all getting along so uh i think this is a, a very strange it's a very strange take to imagine from a guy who pretty much he's you know very politically in tune with things uh it's a very strange take and one that from the Shari perspective and from the strategic perspective, uh, I don't see any room for it. How about yourself? Yeah, so but the when, uh, just a second. Yeah. 
But my apologies. I was just going to make one point here. Yeah. Everybody can search this on Google because the statement was made three months ago. The UAE ambassador to Washington was in at a think tank. I think it's Carnegie or Brookings. I'm not sure, but mm -hmm. you can find it. Yusuf Al-Utayba, the UAE ambassador, is talking, asked about normalization and whether the Abraham Accords have achieved anything for the Palestinians. And he says, and I quote, he says that we've been unable to leverage any influence over the Israelis with regards to the Palestinian issue. Yeah. And we and remember, the UAE brought Bahrain and Sudan and Morocco yeah. to Tel Aviv to get the, it was the UAE that pushed them as a gift to say we can bring it. Yusuf Al-Utayba says that now it's no longer our responsibility. We'll leave that to the future nations that normalize. But let me tell you how many flights now there are between Tel Aviv and Abu Dhabi and mm -hmm. how great our economic ties are. So yeah. even the premise that they would be able to leverage that influence, Netanyahu is not stupid. He knows that they're coming because they want Washington. And even when you see the way he bombed Egypt today and the Egyptians can't even react, Netanyahu mm -hmm. knows he's telling them, we know you're unpopular with your people. We know you can't stand up on your own without American help. Don't try to come to me and try to leverage anything. Yeah. So when it comes mm -hmm. to uh, normalization, which we call it right? Normalization. Uh, when I spoke to my mashayikh on this, especially Sheikh Zuhair, uh, he said uh, that the hukum asli is that it's haram. It's not permissible, right? And then uh, you come to, is it possible in uh, with maslaha and mafasid, if you weigh them out, can there be a fatwa for a specific point in time? That is theoretically possible. Mm -hmm. However, this is going to be based off of الظروف والملابسات والمآلات And this the last one I want to focus on is the maalat of tatbi' of normalization. Maalat means the consequences or mm -hmm. the, the, the future mm -hmm. consequences of it, mm -hmm. right? So when we see what are, so, so we need to speak about what does normalization mean, and we can put that to the side for now, but what are the consequences of yeah. normalization, right? We need to analyze that, we need to, that needs to be part of the discussion, mm -hmm. and we don't need to look far. Yeah. Netanyahu was at the UN a few months ago speaking about what that means for him, right? He said that he's going to bypass, mm. you know, we, of course these are all lies, right? And, and I'm not quoting this to agree with him, so, yeah. but he say he said that we've tried to do peace with the Palestinians for so many years and it didn't work. So I have a different idea. Mm. Let's bypass the Palestinians and go to our other neighbors and have peace with them. Mm -hmm. And then they have no choice but to accept yeah. what everyone else has. Then he flipped over his board and he showed Israel as a full, the full, a full including nation. Gaza yeah. and including the West Bank annex, basically. Mm -hmm. Right, with no mention of a Palestinian state at all, right? And Allahu Alam what he has planned for the yeah. Palestinian people. So we know what the ma'alat, we know what the consequences are, they've said it. Um and, and we also know mm -hmm. it as as Sammy pointed out from the Abraham Accords, what it has been. Yeah. Right? And so and so unless um you know, I think it's more probable than not that this is only going to lead to the situation getting much worse, uh, not, not getting better. And this, there's also a uh, buying of time mm -hmm. type uh, idea for, uh, for Israel because you have this concept of the right to return for Palestinians who are refugees who are out. Well, the mm -hmm. longer that this protracts, the longer that this goes on, yeah. Right. The more uh, I don't want to say useless, but the more not needed that this is, because yeah. as Palestinians in other countries, a uh, few generations pass, they have no connection back they're, to the land. So by the time you give them that right, yeah. you know who's coming back. Yeah. Right. So this is uh, these are some things that we need to think about. You know, the, yeah, the, the that, pro normalization but, but side doesn't seem to care about it. No. But but also just just you mentioned Bimbeya by name as well. I will just throw out as well that. I understand the anger at a lot of the scholars who are seen to be justifying these things or the like. But I would also like to remind also the viewers that 
the imma that they love in history, Imam Malik, Imam uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, and, 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 and these others, and Imam Abu Hanifa, these were scholars who were tortured for their opinions. They were beaten. They mm -hmm. suffered a lot for the opinions that they expressed or the like. Mm -hmm. a, a scholar, the punishment that the scholar gets for going against the ruler is not that he gets a slap on the wrist and he goes home. They face very serious, dangerous consequences. And often what they have to think about before they speak out is not what you have to think about. Mm -hmm. I can tell you from experience, it's terrifying planning a flight route and trying to make sure you don't go over the airspace where there might be an emergency landing and they might take you off the plane. I mean, we have a friend that happened to him flying back from Khartoum to Turkey and the Egyptians made the plane land. CC dragged him off the plane and we haven't heard from him in about eight, nine months or the like. He's disappeared. So I do think that for the scholars also, it's worth, worth remembering that the, I'm not justifying it, but I'm saying that when people say, how can a scholar come out and say this? It's because it's not easy to tolerate the dark prisons of a lot of these regimes. Yeah, there's pressure on, uh, on on Arab scholars, and for a long time it's been like this. Um, I want to now shift to the metaphysical element of things. It seems like the Arabs, states, Turkey, you mentioned Erdogan, um, they've essentially abandoned the people. And yes, maybe they may, in their mind, it's a small little strip, smaller than the state of New Jersey. Uh, Two million people. But it's a test. It's a test. We're being tested by those through those people. Mm. Our, one's position towards those people is part of their test. And I can't imagine metaphysically this going away. This betrayal is not going to go away. I believe that this betrayal, it has to come back upon you. Of course, the Arabs did not try. The saying is, whoever digs a hole for his brother falls into it. Of course, the Arabs didn't dig the hole for... For Gaza, but they see it. They have ability. There is ability to do things. Okay, but uh, you mentioned you gave evidence of Arabs of Erdogan of Bin Salman actually flexing their muscle and scaring the American into you know running to them for meetings. We have ability, but there's no effort. There's nothing being done for them. I fear that this group of people is going to be the test that determines the fate of that region in the future. And all I could really foresee is this calamity in some way, shape, and form coming back on the region. Allah knows best in the form of some kind of a war, in the some form of some kind of catastrophe. Uh, it, life can't go on with oppression like this. That oppression, you put it out in the air, it has to come down. It's not disappearing. Like Einstein said, energy is not born or, dis uh, uh, or, or uh, disappear. It has to come back, right? It, every action that we take is a boomerang that's going to come back. And I fear for, for all these states who are doing this that their people are going to be the ones who suffer the most. Because when, a, when the hakim, when a ruler does something, the good and the bad result of that comes back to the people, right? Uh, what are your thoughts on the metaphysical element of this that I just can't see this uh, passing by and life being, yeah, life may be normal in the decades to come, but eventually this abuse has to come back. This oppression and abandonment of the people uh, of Gaza, it's got to come back to them. I think it's very difficult to, and I think this is more in, uh, in uh, Brother Sammy's domain on what is going to happen, what are the effects of things, but... Mm. I think it's hard to predict sometimes uh, what is going to happen as far as for, for the people, the general people themselves. Mm -hmm. um, the general people themselves as uh, mashayikh like Sheikh Al-Maghili and others, uh, senior mashayikh, 
um, have said that you know Allah subhanahu wa the ayah of the Quran that Allah will not change the condition of a people until they change, change the themselves. themselves. Yeah. So you know, in addition to all of the things that we're doing practically, the tying your camel part, you cannot forget that this uh, ibadah side, living in accordance uh, with uh, Allah Sharia, has to be part of it as well. So I think this uh, this uh, the point that uh, Brother Sami made earlier about the scholars who are closer closer <coughs> to the hakim. This is something that um, you know when you think about it a lot of times, if you Think of yourself. Mm -hmm. If you are in the positions of some of these these high positions of the rulers and the scholars and so on, how would you act? Mm -hmm. Well, take a look to your own life. Yeah. And take a look at how you act in your own life when you see something wrong happening. Are you someone who's facilitating it or standing against it? Yep. So if it's something in your own life without immediate consequences, you cannot yeah. stop. Then imagine if you were in these positions, you might be even worse. So it's important that, that we uh, not just always uh, shift blame and, and focus on ourselves. Yep. In addition to doing the, you know, because you have some people who take that to an extreme, don't do anything. Just stay at home and do ibadah and nothing else as yep. if, you know, uh, all of this other these other things with the correct niyyah is mm -hmm. not ibadah, as if it's yeah. not ibadah with a correct intention. But that other side cannot be, it has to actually be the foundation of it. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the ultimate um, reliance has to be on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then what comes after. It's uh, true. We, we can't, uh, you can't necessarily judge somebody who's in a position yet at the same time. There are many ulama. There are many people. Like they become a hujjah if we see a pattern, right? And if it rarely is a person in a unique situation, right? So, for example, if you don't, if you know how to live in the United States without being an alcoholic, right? I mean, many Muslims live in the United States and they never drink, right? So nobody could come and say, "Hey, I'm in America. You don't know what it's like," right? And I uh, have an excuse, right? So other people become a hujja, for or against, and we can compare. Um, you know, of course, I don't, I'm not speaking right now about a specific person, but the concept that, oh, you never know what the situation they're going through. That's true. But you're not the only person living in that environment. We can compare you to other people, other imams. Some imams left, some imams stayed silent, some imams at least just pulled out of the political sphere altogether. So we have to look at our peers sometimes are the hujja against us. Right. I remember Muhammad Zakaria, the calligrapher in Washington, D.C. He was talking to somebody, said, oh, really, it's really hard to become a calligrapher here in America. And this person was an Arab. And he said, why are you saying it's hard? I'm a non-Arab speaker. If you want it, you can do it. I'm the proof. He's using himself. He's a convert. I'm the proof. So likewise, all of the peers of a generation are the proof for or against a person because they suffer in the same political climate, the same country, the same desires, the same era, okay? And if they're avoiding it, then they become the example. All right, any final comments or questions for our brother Sami Hamdi? I think that one of the, the things that I wanted to mention on the point that you mentioned about the metaphysical aspect, yeah. I think that often Muslims can forget that their, their lives are part of a long tapestry of history where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has always been in control. I think that sometimes when we, you suggest that it will come back on the people, but I actually think it will come back on the regimes. And here's what I mean. 
I think that what the regimes are more concerned about is that over the last 90 years, the Ummah has really made huge gains. I think when you think that 90 years ago, only 90 years ago, the French were officially in Algeria, the British were officially in Egypt. When, Fra when the UN, UN was writing after World War II, when France was liberated from Nazi Germany, they wrote the charter, every man is born free. France celebrated in Paris and massacred thousands of Muslims in Algeria who took to the streets. But the Ummah didn't stop, they kept pushing, it kept pushing, and the Algerians, who were infinitely inferior in military terms to the French, still managed to drive out the French out of Algeria 17 years later. They made the world impossible. They made colonization impossible to continue in the world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed that outcome despite the difference in strength between the Algerians and between the French. And then we continue through this period. We get to the Arab Spring where ordinary people, my father's originally from Tunisia, my mother's Algerian, but I'm from Sidi Bouzid, the hometown, my father, my ancestral home. Mohammed Bouaziz is from the village next door. No one would have thought anyone in Sidi Bouzid, a run-down town would spark the Arab Spring. The Ummah brought down authoritarian regimes. It brought down these invincible regimes. So I think that while we think the regimes are acting from a position of strength, I always argue that they're, they're acting from a position of panic, that the world and the global shifts that's taking place is one in which the Muslims are showing a propensity for bringing about global change, even if they don't like the way that it's happening or the turbulent process. And that's why for me personally, I always say the Quran as a political book is the best way to learn political analysis. You read Surah Hud, for example, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you about all the prophets who could not convince their people. The Prophet Muhammad managed to succeed in taking his people to Mecca. But think politically. He won the greatest success, Fatah Mecca, but political analysts at the time still thought Mecca Medina were backwater areas not worth conquering. But it was the greatest success because of what it meant and what he left behind. And Allah had defined the success of the Prophet Muhammad and made the epitome of Mecca. Ibrahim السلام, never saw his progeny, but he was promised that it would be like the stars. He never saw it, but Allah honored him with it and, and considered success. Lut السلام, had an ayah which used to bewilder me when I was 17, 18 years old and trying to read political books. When his people come to try to oppress him, he says, if only I had the power and a strong reinforcement to push you back. He, he cries out in the acknowledging I don't have the power in the same way Palestinians are saying I don't have the power to drive back the Israelis but Allah is the one who intervenes and destroys his people and rescues them and that's why I think that when when you're looking at the way the situation is today I think the best area to describe it would be when Allah says woman not the result the sa'i the striving because Allah is saying here that yeah everybody who's listening, I alone decide the outcome. Mm. I decide how it should be. I decide the course of events. I decide what succeeds and what doesn't succeed. Your choice is not as in the outcome. Allah will not consult us in it. Your choice is in whether you want to strive and use the powers Allah has given you to try to bring about that change. And you may not live to see the success, but if you strive, Allah thanks it. My grandfather was a mujahid who fought the French. He used to tell me that my generation was about securing liberation. Your generation is about building from there. I don't want you to be fighting my fight. I want you to go forward. And that's what, how the ummah should see itself in terms of going forward. And that's why I think that I always think Muslims should flip the narrative. The reason regimes are panicking is because the ummah broke colonization from bottom up. It wasn't a top-down affair. It's ordinary Muslims took to the streets and made colonization impossible. Then ordinary Muslims toppled invincible.
invincible regimes. The panic is that an ummah that believes itself to be weak is act actually has the capacity to be strong. That an ummah that thinks it's incapable is actually very capable, but doesn't know it, nor does it appreciate mm -hmm. its potential to be capable. And that's why I think that even with this Palestinian issue, and I'll finish on this point, Netanyahu is not bombing Gaza because he believes that Gaza should be pounded. He's bombing Gaza because he's terrified that what's happened now is that last week we were saying the Palestinian cause is dying. Today it's roaring in all four corners of the mm -hmm. earth. There are protests in New York, in London, in Paris, in Berlin, in Rome, in Malaysia, in Pakistan, in Africa. There are protests everywhere. Everybody suddenly believes that the Palestinians are still alive. Bloomberg has on its front page four or five days ago where it says that normalization without talking to the Palestinians is finished. Netanyahu has sold us a fallacy. They're saying that we can't go back to how we were before. And that's not because of the regimes. That's because of the ordinary ummah, the ordinary people mobilizing and making that difference. When Israel sits with the heads of social media, Dr. Shadi, and they're trying to limit hashtag Palestine or the like, they're not trying to limit government campaigns. They're trying to limit the ordinary people like Sheikh Harun from going onto Twitter and actually tweeting it because it messes with the algorithm and promotes the pro-Palestinian content. They're coming after the ummah. The, the repressors and oppressors know the value and strength of this ummah, even if the ummah doesn't know it itself. And that's why I'd rather finish on this point. You suggested it will come back on the people, but I think the regimes are terrified it will come back on them, that Allah will punish them through the people, just as he punished the colonizers, just as he punished bin Ali in Tunisia, just as he punished Mubarak in, in, in Egypt. They're worried that there's something coming for them as well. And, with, and, and if you look at the trajectory, I do think there's a lot to be grateful for and a lot to be optimistic for, even if perhaps it's not the way we want it. If this ummah is not running, then at least it's walking. If it's not walking, at least it's crawling. But the ummah is moving forward. And I'm really glad, Dr. Shea, and I think here is a very good example. I'm in London, the UK. You're in the US. There are brothers in Malaysia as well, and you're in contact with all of them. The ummah today, is it's lovely the way that all these initiatives are being pieced together to help to amplify the voice. You were in one lane. I was in another lane. Today, Allah has brought our paths together. Tomorrow, he'll bring you with other paths. Allah is dictating the outcome because we we chose to strive, so Allah is bringing the efforts together and piecing it because the outcome and victory belongs to Him, but the battle and struggle belongs to us. And what an honor it is to be part of the struggle. I love the optimism here and the, the idea that we have to have belief. It all starts with belief. I was speaking the other day with, with, with people that uh, Israel itself, when you look back at its history, it starts with words. It starts with pain and it starts with words. And it starts with words from regular people. Theodor Herzl was not some diplomat. He was not a, a ruler of any sort. He was a, just a journalist, all right? He was a, a journalist that didn't really have much of a name to himself. He was a novelist. But he was a guy who had belief. You have to admit, you have to give credit where credit is due. He had belief and he had a big vision. And what I'm seeing here, if you look at, if you have any pattern recognition anywhere, the latter part of this century is going to belong to Muslims. Because whenever a beginning of a century takes a group of people and just sort of green lights bullies them around the world from pillar to post, and everyone is accepting of this bullying, and every cal calamity and catastrophe in the world is Muslims, but yet nobody cares and nobody wants to do anything, is permitted to do this in the world right now. If you have pattern recognition, go look at when this happens to other people. By the end of the century... That pain has forged a will 
and a unity amongst that people that becomes unstoppable. That's why I always tell people the end cent of this century, what is going to be very favorable for Muslims will be driving it. They will be sure. driving it. They will be driving the world by the end of this century, forged by all this pain. People say, we watch all these videos and I feel like there's nothing I can do when I can't do anything. Yeah, there isn't. That's part of the plan. In Mecca, the Sahaba could not do anything except watch abuse for 10 years. Three years, it was silent dawah. 10 years, they were abused. And the abuse ramped up for 10 years. All they could do is watch. Allah Ta'ala did not allow them to do anything. But that watching forged within themselves such a will to put up a fight. And to ask the question, who are we? What are we? What is justice? What is right? What is wrong? And it forged within them such a willpower, they became unstoppable after that. Go to the Germans. They got humiliated in World War I. That humiliation forged a willpower in a generation, produced the Nazis. Okay. Morals aside, they were an unstoppable force for a period of time. What the Nazis did in the Holocaust and what the Russians did with the pogroms to the Jews, they gave them so much pain. And all those Jews could sit back and watch and be victims and, and suffer. What did it do? It forged a will within those people. They produced a state of Israel. Morals right and wrong aside. Just look at the pattern here. Okay. African Americans today, uh, for, for centuries, they were green light to do whatever you want to them. Now, the culture of the youth, the culture of the world is driven by African Americans, specifically African Americans. What comes out of that culture is going to go to the rest of the world. No one imitate. There's no form of music that go that went that came from China. Well, there's now K-pop, but rap is something that's gone to the whole world, right? It for the pain forges a will. Pain forces you to ask questions, and and pain forces you to now realize it's going to take a lot to avoid this in the future. And I see that that Muslims are are, are in that beginning of that trajectory. You can't do anything. You just look at the pain. But we can do something. And that's what we talked about. It starts with talking. It starts with tweeting. It starts with changing public opinion. The, <coughs> that's what Herzl did. We talked about him uh, last week extensively. What did he do? He talked. He talked. He talked. He met with people. He got the ball rolling on a political vision. He didn't even know where to go. He was going to go to Uganda. One. He was going to go to South America at one point. Right? He didn't even know where he was going. At the end of his life, he concluded on Palestine. Right? And then still the Western Jews laughed him off the stage. Yet he kept talking and talking and talking and it became something. Now Muslims are forming their political will and that political vision involves erasing all these borders and having an ummah that is led by the Quran, that is led by the Prophet ﷺ, Sunnah, and that has a, a, a vision for itself and for the rest of the world, not just ourselves. Right? Your leader, you're, you're a leaders of the world for environment. We have to have visions for these things. And I think that we're seeing, we're in the beginning of it. And we're going to start seeing that. And towards, inshallah, when, my, when our kids, when our kids are older, they'll be in those positions. And we'll be like that 90-year-old, you know, that, who was, tells stories about the past. And, oh, you wouldn't believe it. People did whatever they wanted to Muslims back in the day. Right? So uh, I'm going to give it to Sheikh Harun for closing words. And then we will thank you for your time. Jazakallah khair. But let's have Sheikh Harun give us our closing words.
So I think in uh, <laughs> keeping all of this in mind, I think it's uh, anybody who looks carefully realizes that the uh, the Palestinian issue is representative of so much more. It's not just the Palestinian issue, and I think that's why um, it causes so many people to move in a way that we don't see happening for other places because of what it represents. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important that as each and every single one of us are reading or listening to things or speaking, that we are constantly reflecting, mm. right? What is our message? What is our role going to be? Because if you look at the uh, the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you see how fast Islam spread in a way that you could, you could say it's from the Mu'jizat, it's a miracle, how quickly the message of Islam spread. Uh, during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that uh, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam saw it in his lifetime and then it continued to grow mm. after in a way that was unprecedented, that this can only happen in the way that the Prophet ﷺ taught every single Sahabi to have their message, meaning what are they going to, what is their risala, right? what is their message in this world, how is their life going to play in this spreading. Mm -hmm. And so it's important that all of us reflect and see, it might not be obvious right now, I'm going to be honest, when this all started, I was sitting in front of my screen and it's difficult to work, difficult to do anything, difficult to read, difficult to... Because you, you're focusing on this, but then after you start thinking and reflecting, you start to see things opening up. Okay, this is kind of the role that I can play, whether it be a role in front or behind the scenes or whatever mm -hmm. it is. It does not have to be something flashy. It can be something as simple as some people seeing a, uh, a information that they find is very useful and they have the skills to be able to do graphic design, for example. Mm -hmm. And they take the most beneficial information, summarize it and put it in a image that can be shared. Something as simple as that. But every single person has their message, has their thing that they can contribute mm -hmm. uh, to the cause of the ummah. Uh, and what Habib Omar always says, himmatul insan alati tahsul fi baatin al-insan tahsul la infa'alat fi shu'un al-kawni min hawalayh. Right, the your your will that is inside your heart, you no know, whatever you do, it will come out into the world mm -hmm. somehow. You can't underestimate it and have to like he said, mashkura. Your effort will be thanked by Allah, which means rewarded by Allah Taala, and the end result is with Him. Regardless, it's going to happen. So you want to be a shareholder in it or not? That's the only question. It's going to happen either way. Uh, Brother Sam, you we kept you for a long time. Uh, you've very well spoken and Sheikh Harun and I, we always talk fiqh and we talk evidence. You're a journalist and you showed what it means to bring journalistic evidence, right? And you're citing many uh, uh, ambassadors saying this on this channel, on this date, that's journalistic <laughs> evidence. So uh, it was wonderful to hear that. And it was great to hear, uh, uh, again, the optimistic message about Muslims, about the future and about the situation. Jazakallah khair and we hope to talk again soon. And good luck. And Dr. Shadi, I've seen you in the past on these videos. It's an honor to be here. And may Allah reward your efforts and keep elevating you, inshallah. Ameen, and you too. Barakallah fiqh. Barakallah. Allah barakallah. Wa alaykum All right, mashallah, he was very well spoken. I did watch some of his, but not extensively. And he really did a good job, mashallah. I think the one of the reasons why he he resonates with so many people uh, in the spreading is the way that he's telling everyone that uh, there is a role for you to play. Yeah, and I think that's, that's really very important. important. I think a lot of people, as I was mm -hmm. saying before, uh, like myself, were, what am I going to do here from America? In my exactly you this know, defeated uh, mentality, exactly. 
This mentality that believes that the single individual is nothing. And I always look, subhanAllah, Henry Ford changed the world. He changed how we live. The Monday through Friday work week was Henry Ford. Nine to five is Henry Ford, right? Uh, just connecting the idea that the car was something that was like a private jet today. Only the rich had a car. He came and said, hold on, why can't everyone have a car? Well, if everyone has a car, that alters everything. Now, I'm a, a, a seller of hats. I sell hats. I'm not selling hats to 500 people. I'm selling hats to now 50,000 people who can drive to my store. He transformed everything, the man. Uh, and what was he? A regular guy. The, Dwight, uh, the, the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers were, did, were, did not, not allow you use them to completely transform the world. What were they? Were they born smart? Were they born into a science lab or something? No, they were regular guys who came up with this crazy idea that you could actually defy gravity, right? And they did it, and they transformed the world. Uh, so many people in the founding fathers were people who said, "Wait, hey, we can make our own country here, right? So regular individuals, they can't, you, you, you're, you're as weak as you believe yourself to be weak, and you're as strong as you believe yourself to be strong. And sometimes the people who alter the world and change the world are nothing other than the, own, the people who believe themselves capable. That's the only reason they do it. It's not they don't have a, a different skill set. Different, they, they still need to sleep eight hours a day, right? They still need to do everything else that they need to do that regular people do. But they believe they're going to change the world. And we have to start having that uh, approach. We have to have that attitude, right? Uh, and, and everyone will be rewarded based on their intention. Yeah. Right. At the end of the day, you cannot determine the outcome of your work. Mm -hmm. That's on Allah. Yeah. And and the problem is if you think that, you know, you don't want to do anything because you don't see what the outcome will be. Well, you had too much reliance on what you can do. You uh, need to have your reliance on Allah. You, you you can't see it. Why would you need to see it? That ruins the the fun. The fun of it is that I don't know where this is going, but I'm shooting for the stars. I don't know where this is going. I don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, some people need the whole staircase laid out before they go up the steps. In reality, all you need to do is one step because that's all you could do anyway. Whether or not you, you see if there's 10 steps there or there isn't, either way, you're only going one step, right? So all you need to see is the one step ahead of you and your imagination. Let it uh, do the rest of the work. Um, Omar, what do we have up now? GRT, head of development. Okay, I didn't know we were having another guest, but mashallah. All right, let's, let's do it. Uh, Global Relief Trust. That is our, uh, it's, it's, sponsor, it's uh, what's the word? Approved, I guess. It's an approved charity so that you don't have to worry where your money's going. It's an approved charity in the United Kingdom. This is our, we've, we've tied ourselves with them, right? Okay, we've tied ourselves because we did have a mutual friend, right, who was from Arcview, actually, and now works for GRT, or is friends with GRT. He's the one who introduced us to GRT. Um, we're going to get the update. Meanwhile, um, let us actually go see where our, our Gaza GRT campaign is right now. Let's click. Safina Saidi, Gaza Appeal. Uh, Omar will put it in the... He'll put it in the chat. We're at $14,546.92 uh, pounds. Okay, so we're almost through matching the UAE uh, pennies that they sent over. $20 million. You know that the guy, the UAE, uh, King Sultan of the UAE, whatever you call him, Amir, his yacht, he has a massive yacht. The maintenance of the yacht is $30 million a year to maintain the yacht. 
to make sure it's painted. The cooks are, or the chefs are paid to make the maintenance of the yacht is 30 million. And this guy's given Palestine 20 million. I believe. Anyway, let's, let's now, uh, Let's go to our GRT rep. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to the Sphina Society program. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi rahmatullah. Are you in London right now? I'm in uh, Birmingham. Birmingham. Okay, mashallah. Give us the update. Uh, Gaza, what's on the, on the ground? What's happening? Uh, subhanallah. Well, I'll start off with uh, saying I was actually doing some calculations and people like stats. Mm-hmm. Um, statistics for everything um, And I was trying to work out Just how many people have died Since uh, the last uh, 15 days Of bombing mm-hmm. of Gaza and Subhanallah Every hour um, Just over you know how, how the stats worked out Is 14.2 people Are being killed Every hour in Gaza Subhanallah uh, uh, the the death uh, toll at the moment is five thousand one hundred, of which at least two thousand are children, and uh, over uh, fourteen hundred are women. Mm. Uh, the rest are, are are elderly and men. Mm. Um, you know, this is the you know twenty twenty three for me will always be remembered as the year where we can put our televisions on or mm-hmm. we can put our tablets or mobile phones or whatever it is and actually watch genocide taking place subhanallah that's it's it's uh it's an insane thing this is what social media is it's an insane thing you're literally watching it but this is what we can do right so tell us about the ambulances inshallah so uh today i've spent most of the day we sent a team of um mechanics uh Mm -hmm. Uh, like many people, I can drive cars, but I don't know much about cars or vans. So I've sent a team of mechanics to Germany and Holland yesterday. Uh, they've spent the whole day there going through various different uh, traders that sell uh, ambulances and fire trucks. We have sourced uh, eight very good ambulances and two fire trucks. Uh, tomorrow, inshallah, we will put them through a full service, even though they have been serviced already. But we will do another service on them, and we will then source extra parts, things like brake discs, um, time belts, uh, ser- service kits, and things like this. Uh, two, three of those of mm-hmm. each. Uh, once we've done that, uh, or the other team tomorrow are going to be sorting out the paperwork side of things, getting them registered, so we're able to get them out of Europe, um, sorting out the insurance and all the all the admin side of things. And inshallah, the idea is myself and another team will then fly out on at some point on Wednesday uh, to pick up those ambulances and fire trucks and drive them to the uh, Turkey border with Bulgaria and inshallah hand them over to the Turkish Red Crescent who will clear these emergency response vehicles into Gaza for us. Uh, we've been told inshallah this will uh, be cleared. It may take up to two weeks. Um, obviously, as you've probably seen on your on the media and, and the videos we've been sending, our um, majority of our Gaza team are in the times of conflict and war. They actually turn to um, frontline paramedics, and there's a re- there's a reason for that. Sheikh is is because we don't obviously, as you know, there's everyone's been targeted. Anyone could be killed, and mm-hmm. there's a small. Um, 
section that have got a skill set that can save people's lives. And what we don't want to do is send doctors and paramedics out in areas that are being bombed. So we want to keep them in the hospitals. So the frontline, frontline drivers or paramedics will try get the injured people uh, and take them to the hospitals. And ultimately, everything gets uplifted. So the paramedics almost become doctors. The nurses almost become doctors. And some of the basic um, stuff that maybe, you know, cleaning and bandaging and things like that, ordinary civilians will do. So our aid workers currently are frontline paramedics at the moment. Um, I feel like I'm talking to Sheikh Ibrahim Osiefa. Uh, you must be originally from Liverpool. Is that right? Astaghfirullah. That, 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 <laughs> That, that, uh, Abdul Hay just told you to say that shit. Uh, yeah, he's gonna record that. I'm What you guys have a, a rivalry or something with Liverpool? Uh, uh, Sheikh, uh, if there's any place in the world I don't like, it's Liverpool. Oh, that's crazy. But I, I, I'm, I, I bet you all these people on the stream they're gonna tell us. Yeah, this sounds like just like Sheikh Ibrahim Osiefa's accent, Subhanallah. Uh, Abdul, Abdul Hay is messaging you right now. I believe. <laughs> Take it up with him then. <laughs> no, okay, I will now, deal with them. <laughs> now, many people have been asking us since we've been showing your the the GRT rep in on the streets of Gaza. They are saying, "How is GRT doing it? Are you allowed to speak on how exactly what is the funnel or the?" I, 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 I can give you a broad yeah. Uh, uh, information. Look, we know that Gaza has been uh, under a blockade for the past 16 years. And the people we know, look, one of the things that happens in Gaza is like a lawnmower effect. Every time it grows, Israel comes and cuts the grass down. Yep. Yeah. So they know every year, every six months, every two years, there's the potential of, of, of bombings and war. So what you'll have is a lot of traders, uh, warehouses, businesses, they will stock up on things that they can't stock up on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, this is where, you know, we, we, we specialize in conflict areas The GRT actually started as a result of the whole blockade in Gaza. Our founders originally traveled to Gaza back in 2008, 9, 10 and 12. And so our sort of inspiration behind the charity has been uh, Gaza. So we've got obviously a good network, a good connection with people there. Uh, and so we source out and we've got the relationship with those traders because we've been working with them for a number of years. So we are able to access certain things that many others can't access. And of course, what we're trying to do is make sure that our people, you know, there's obviously a million people who are internally displaced. But of that million, there are probably hundreds of thousands who have actually lost everything. So, you know, as we know, there's been over... Uh, 20,000 residential buildings that have been damaged or destroyed, of which at least seven to 8,000 have been totally destroyed. So there's going to be potentially seven to 8,000 family homes that have been completely wiped out. And if those people were able to leave uh, alive, they would have absolutely nothing. So these are the priority areas we're trying yeah. to target in terms of helping those people who've lost literally everything. So are there, are there banks uh, set up there? Are there banks functioning there? One of the things is there's there's no way you can send money into Gaza bank to bank. Yeah, it has to be uh, by hand. There, there, there is ways in terms of, for example, there are legitimate businesses who we who again this is about based on trust who are providing certain items, but they have international banks maybe in Jordan or and that's you know, okay. Saudi so Asia, that answers the question to many people. And the reason I'm I'm saying this, asking this openly, is because people genuinely wonder how are you doing it, right? So there is your answer for it. He's dealing with merchants. 
businesses, established businesses in Gaza, whether it's for bread, for food, this business has banks internationally and the funds are wired. Okay, because I'm, I can't tell you how many times I see a brother in the masjid and say, hey, listen, this GRT, is this real? How you guys have a guy in Gaza? Where, where is he getting the stuff from? Where, how is the money getting in? Right. So, uh, and I felt like it was a question that if I, if we asked it here, people see how it works. They could, they could, you know, get a picture that, yeah, this is, uh, not, nobody was really doubtful, but just wondering how, how is this, how is it happening? Yeah, so sure. that, that's this, how it works. This is legitimate questions. And of course, yeah. every person, you know, you're, 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 you're going to be donating from your, uh, uh, wealth and you have every right and subhanAllah, we've been inundated with the questions about these kind of things. How are you doing it? The, the message I'll say to people, you know, uh, Wallahi, this is the time to trust your brothers and sisters. Yeah. You know, uh, I know there might be a small minority of charities that have maybe given all the charities a bad name. Yeah. But this is where we base it. Look, there are many genuine charities who do not have people on the ground in Gaza. Alhamdulillah, we probably have about 20-odd charities that are actually working with us, meaning they are actually giving us the funds. We are doing distribution for them. And, and, and the, you know, they're using that platform, their contacts, their networks to raise the money, and they're then handing it over to another charity. And ultimately, uh, this is the time we, do t- we should try trust uh, yeah. those charities. And then the other co- uh, thing that's really important for people to understand is that, look, not every single penny that has been donated or raised is going to go to Gaza right now. There is going to be a massive rebuilding exercise. Uh, and, and, and inshallah, we pray that this conflict, this war, this genocide, whatever you want to call it, gets stopped right now. You know, yeah. there's nothing better for me to hear right now to have some sort of international ceasefire announced. And once that's announced, you know, we, we, we follow what the media hype is. And if tomorrow is an a, a earthquake in another part of the world, we'll be all focused on that. Yeah. So for me, is we, we try to raise as much as we can now. It doesn't mean we're going to spend everything right now. We will spend, like, I'll give you an example. We, we sponsor around 400 orphans in Gaza. Now, it might be that we need to sponsor now 800 orphans in Gaza. And yeah. when we sponsor them, we're sponsoring them for life. We're not just going to sponsor them for one month. We, we will allocate funds to them throughout the year. There's mm-hmm. going to be people's homes that need rebuilding. There are hospitals that need fixing. There are, you know, we've had 23 ambulances that have been destroyed. This is why we're trying to put, put ambulances back on front line. There are people's businesses. You know, we might now have uh, somebody who ha- who was a barber or who had a bookshop or whatever it is. They've died. Their business has been destroyed. You know, so we either support the widows and, and the families to continue with that business or we rebuild that family with that business because what we want to do is that long-term sustainable project where they're not reliant on us to keep giving them money. We want them getting at least working for their for their uh, wealth and not not Very giving that every year, etc. So there is that short-term emergency urgent need, and there is a long-term objective of rebuilding and sustainable projects. Very good. And here uh, people are saying, yes, I was wondering. Sayida says, oh, that explains it. Um, Perina says, we trust you. We're just curious. Uh, Rabia says, thank you for asking the question. And I think that, inshallah, is going to increase people's um, uh, donations. We already went up 600 pounds just in this uh, interview. All right, 600 pounds. Uh, I'd like to ask the question of the, the, the rubble and the, the trash removal. Because we're thinking about, not trash, it's rubble, right? Um, cement. You see, like, Actually, it's, it's cement. It, it, it is trash as well. You know, you, yeah. 
because everything has been stopped. There are people's, you know, waste product. Where is this going? Yeah, where, yeah, where is the, there's, you're not calling a plumber at this hour, right? No, no, the, the, the biggest concern, one of the biggest concerns now is the sanitation and the hygiene stuff. The, yeah. the, you know, there's not access to clean water right now. Yeah. People are drinking bad water. We already know 97% of water in Gaza is polluted with sewage deliberately. So there is going to be a long-term health issues. And one of the biggest concern is the, uh, the the spread of things like cholera and diphtheria and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that's a major concern. Uh, that's that, a big you know, problem. And, and, and as soon as... Uh this conflict if it comes to an end sooner than later and then there's another earthquake halfway across the world no one's going to think about gaza but they have to wake up the next day they have to do stuff they have to live their life uh rubble and garbage needs to be removed buildings need to be rebuilt this is going to take you know uh, charitable efforts like this so uh what is the first thing that we're gonna that that, that you plan on do you have a plan for a specific location, for example, that you're adopting uh, to to clean it out and rebuild it. And the reason I'm asking this question is because the more specific a cause is, the easier it is for an individual to relate to it. And I'm telling you, when you were sending those footage, that footage back from uh, the ambulance, and that brother was sending the footage directly to us and saying, "Here, Safina Saidi viewers, you know, here is the you know, bags of bread. Here is the ambulance." Right, that had such an impact on everybody because we get to see the person right there in front of us. So, what's the 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 plan for afterwards? Is there a specific spot that you want to rebuild? Yeah, you know, on a on a normal disaster, we we would have that at this mm -hmm. stage where things are being carpet bombed. The need is everything. So I, at the moment, I cannot say to you, medicine, water, you know, food. Yeah you know whether it's sanitation you know pe people's lives are being destroyed in every aspect uh, as an organization look, we we want to make sure the first priority is people have clean access to safe access to water yep. this is a major priority because we cannot rebuild anything unless people the population are being access to drink water safe drinking water then there's an issue of rebuilding homes i mean one of the things people forget is the size of gaza Yep. Yeah, you know, uh, Subhanallah, we 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 had an incredible um, project in Ramadan just gone. Wallahi, you know, it's 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 one it's madness. Um, we we raised quite a considerable amount of money to plant olive trees in Gaza. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Yusuf, Subhanallah, when I told him how many olive trees we need to plant, he goes, "Ahi, where do you want me to do it? Shall we do bunk beds? Yeah, <laughs> or we do? He goes, there's only short space of land. Yeah, yeah how many? You know, Gaza is just going to be full of olive trees." And subhanAllah, we planted them. And, and, and now we, do we think, you know, these olive trees will have to be taken over where we build new homes? Because this is, you know, the, the fields that you're seeing where people are sleeping. This is one of the areas that we were building, uh, planting these uh, olive trees. But I suppose, look, one of the focus areas that we want to we wanna do is, is, is the water and, and, you know, the orphans and the widows project. Because these are the things that I think that are closest to us. Uh, these are the things that are most rewarding yeah. uh, and these are the things that will lead to greater good as well because yeah. if we can sort these things out then inshallah the other things will come about it yeah. look we're not going to be a charity i mean you mentioned the uae giving 20 million pounds which alhamdulillah is considerable amount of money but in this grand scheme of things it's it's yeah. it's 
not much. But I think this is where the big players will come in and, mm-hmm. and start rebuilding homes and etc. But yeah. I, but I think for us, what we need to focus on is you know, for me, I actually have three orphans that are sponsored in Gaza. I'm I'm desperately trying to find out if my orphans. I, I call them my orphans. They, they're like my children. I mean, one of the girls she was born at the same time uh, as my son. She was born one week after my son. So I used to say to the child's grandmother, you know, one day I'll get access to Gaza. And my son's gonna marry the the orphan girl. You know, we have we have a, we have a laugh and a joke. My, I'm desperately trying to find out if she's okay. You know, uh, we we are, we do know that out of our orphans that we sponsor, at least. Around thirty-five to forty have have been killed in 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 Gaza at the moment. Uh, I, it's a very difficult question to to answer. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, um, as things calm down, normally when we do aid relief work, we base it on a needs assessment, find out what the needs of the area is. When situations like this, you know, talking to all the partners and and people on the ground, the need is everything. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's from hygiene products to water to food yeah. to building to medicine the the need is great and and, and in fact the un hcr today said this is probably the biggest catastrophe since since world war ii subhanallah i can imagine uh it's it's uh a complete they're gonna have to build from the ground up after this if even it's not like it's gonna go back to normal it's still gonna be contested land it's still gonna be land that they're gonna harass they're gonna close up uh whether they take the north part then the south part will be uh, a, a contested is going to be a place where they harass them. They make everything difficult. They're not going to let supplies just come in. There's such a, uh, um, they're going to make it such a headache. And on top of that, so many people, including maybe your orphans, they're now refugees. They may have gone somewhere else or uh, who knows where because so many people are displaced now in Gaza as well. But uh, this brings us to the end of our program. MashaAllah, we've raised up to 15,367 pounds, uh, 15,467 pounds. So we raised 700 pounds uh, in the span of this small interview. And it doesn't matter, big or small, what matters is the effort relative. There, We didn't have 700 pounds uh, uh, 15 minutes ago, now we have it. So relatively, uh, that's what's important, and it's the effort that's important. We're going to hit the 20,000 this week, bidn Allah ta'ala. If we're at 15,400 now... Right, and people are going to watch this stream later on, right? Throughout the day, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to hit 20,000 pounds, which was our goal. Um, and we're going to hit that, and we ask Allah ta'ala to accept it from us. And, and, and everyone who's pitched in one pound, even, or just share it. You may not have money right now, but just share it to your friends, share it to your friend group. Tell them they, they got someone on the ground who's doing it directly. You could see him in the he, he came on our, our program with, through videos before, and we can send. Hey, uh, 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 Ammar, can you ask, ask him to uh, send another video, like a daily clip, a daily routine, like just, hey, Safina Saidi, this is what we're doing, blah, 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 30 seconds, right? It gives people a real-time feeling that they're helping someone on the ground there. So, Brother Atiq, Jazakallah khairan. May Allah reward you, and you're from the, inshallah, uh, yani, type of mujahideen doing this type of work. Uh, may Allah keep you inspired, keep you strong, and give you tawfiq and bless all your work and accept it. Answer your dua and guide your children and all of those who help you at GRT. Uh, Jazakumullah khairan. And for everybody, this was a great uh, kickoff for the week and a great stream. Uh, we will see you tomorrow. Uh, thank you to Sheikh Haroon who took time from his busy day. Um, he's a 
Tal, he, he, he's not just a alim in fiqh, he's a alim in accounting, right? And he's getting his ijazah soon in accounting. He's one-fourth of the way. So we're taking him away from studying to get his CPA ijazah in accounting. It's one out of four tests, right? Yeah. Uh, so he's done one. Make dua for him to get the... Uh, Allah give him tawfiq, inshallah. And you did start sharing at one point some accounting tips on, on Instagram and... Yeah, I was gonna start a while doing back, that. Right? Yeah, I was gonna start doing that kind of stuff. But is it secret that you're an accountant? No, it's not secret, but yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, for Shabab to see, he has a profession. We're not sitting around just reading books. He's doing mm-hmm. something, right? Uh, and that's and and it's very useful stuff. So Jazakallah khairan to everyone who uh, took part in this. Everybody, will see you tomorrow. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk wal asr. إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله